Well, good morning. Turn in your Bibles this morning with me to Genesis chapter 4. The book of Genesis, fourth chapter. I bring you greetings from Inner City Baptist Church and from Detroit Baptist Seminary where I serve, and I'm uh, privileged to be able to uh, join you, join the uh, inmates in running the asylum this morning, apparently. The stories of Scripture make up some of the most enjoyable reading in the whole Old Testament, but they also make up some of the most misunderstood portions of Scripture as well. Many, in fact, don't even believe them to be true. They imagine that the authors fabricated these stories either to create moral lessons of some sort or perhaps to create a sense of solidarity and community, a, a sense of belonging with their shored with their shared stories uh, that these can sometimes bring to a social unit. That's what the Greeks did, right? With their legends and epic stories in which humans interacted with the gods in order to weave the fabric of Greek culture together so as to foster some community, some nationalism, and a sense of destiny that would you know, fuel further advances in Greek society. Stories like this will unite modern nations and families in the workplace too, right? You've got stories that are told of various members of your family that get bigger every year with the telling, and that little bit of exaggeration actually helps to foster community, right? Brings a little bit bigger laughs, greater affection, a little bit more loyalty to the clan. And this experience, perhaps, can cause us, who should know better, to look at the stories of Scripture in somewhat the same way. We're going to be looking at one of these stories here this morning, the story of Cain and Abel. And sometimes we have sort of a nostalgic feel about this story. I remember this story from Sunday school. Mrs. McGilligutty taught it to us. And for this reason, my brother is alive today, right? It's a, and and and. and, and but when we come to this familiar story, I, I, I want to start by asking us first um, some very important questions about the text. Um, when we read the stories of Scripture, I, always, I, I teach it this way in, in, in seminary here, when we look at the stories, particularly of the Old Testament, there are basically three levels that we want to look at these stories at. I don't want to discount the peripheral benefit that this story can give to our personal morals, how we treat our brothers and sisters. But I think it's important to observe that there's more going on in this story than that. Uh, we find, first of all, that the stories of Scripture are about God, God Himself. They tell us something about what God is and who He is. Second, they are about what God is doing incidentally within a particular history of window, sort of a, 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 to advance his great concern for the whole of history. Sometimes this is the more abstract and difficult to see here, because we, but we need to develop the imagination necessary to understand these stories and read these stories like the original he hearer. Uh, would have done so in that context. And we want to align ourselves with the big picture of what God is doing in society. 
We also do find out, for instance, from 1 Corinthians 10, that these stories are written, they happened, as examples for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come, in order that we might live more ethically pure and moral lives. I think sometimes there is this hesitation uh, to read the Bible moralistically, that sometimes we actually, you know, excise the idea of morality entirely. And that's, 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 that's wrong. So that's sort of an overreaction here. There are some moral lessons to be gained here. But I think firstly, we want to understand who God is and what he is doing within history as we read these books. So we're going to read the story here today of Cain and Abel. I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 4, and then we will unpack it together. So Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Adam made love to his wife Eve. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks. Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. So crops, fruit. Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from the best of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor, and so Cain was very angry, and his face became downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were out in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me out of the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women. One was named Ada, the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. And he was the father of all who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son named Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools made out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naamah. 
Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. And if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. Then Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. And about that time, the people finally began to call on the name of the Lord. I'd like to think that this chapter is a single story. There's four scenes in this story, but it's a single story. And only one character appears in all four paragraphs. That is Cain. He is, humanly speaking, the protagonist of the story. I have called the story the story of Cain and Abel up till this point, but it really is the story of Cain. Okay? Abel dies by verse 8, right? So it's, it's really the story of Cain. I think it's a tendency, I think, to see Cain and Abel as two, or more, two more or less equal figures in this story, and that the main thrust of the story is a contrast between Abel's faith unto salvation and Cain's lack of faith unto perdition. But I'm not sure that this understanding is robust enough to give us a complete picture of what happens in the entirety of this chapter. And the Bible is more than just a history of redemption. It offers us a foundational worldview into which everything fits. We find redemptive grace and common grace side by side in this story, and common grace seems to get the upper hand, at least in terms of its prominence. We begin with what is likely the birth of Adam's first two children, Cain and Abel. We know that Adam and Eve must have had other children in order to give wives to these these sons that they have, so they're Probably are other children, perhaps boys and girls alike, but these are likely the first two, Cain and Abel. And in what is the first installment of a a significant pattern in this book, we actually find that God overlooks the first child and places his favor on the second. And this is what happens here. At the same time, God does not treat Cain as some sort of a useless figure in the story. In fact, I think we're going to learn more about God through his responses to Cain than we do about his responses to Abel, because they're much more abundant. As Romans 9 tells us, we learn a lot about God from the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, as well as from the vessels of mercy. And I think what we're going to see here today is there's a lot of discussion here about a vessel of wrath made for destruction and how God made that work, orchestrated his world so that would work. And and hopefully we're going to see here that we live in a world of Cain's, right? Or the descendants of Cain. They outnumber us significantly. And yet... They don't exist as pawns in God's universe. They're actually a part of it. And they are, as as we are, forwarding God's agenda. They may not know it. They may be doing it unwillingly. And yet, 
they are not just simply you know, foils along the way. We find that Cain and his family are significant in this story. The story is very condensed. By the time we get to verses 2 and 3, enough time has passed for Cain and Abel to become functional adults. So it's very rapid here. Cain raises crops. Abel raises animals. And uh, it says here that in the course of time, after a period of time, after a season of working perhaps, we might think, they both brought an offering to God. Now God rejects Cain's offering. He accepts Abel's offering of one of his best animals. This response leads naturally to the question as to why God responded the way that he did. Many suggest that the point of contrast is the fact that Abel offered a bloody sacrifice while Cain did not, although there's no indication that that is true. In fact, there's a number of textual clues that suggest that that is not the point at all. Firstly, the term that's used here for offering in verse 3 is not the term that Moses will use for a guilt or a sin offering. Rather, it's a term reserved in the law for a meal offering, which is actually never flesh, never an, an animal sacrifice. Secondly, the function of this offering is described here in terms that probably make it as close as anything to one of the thank offerings in the Old Testament. So it is, it is a, it is a of, in terms of its substance, it's usually a meal offering. Its function is to thank God. And so the thank offerings, <clears throat> uh, if we look ahead uh, to Moses' stipulations here, always consisted of the first fruits of whatever you got during the year. That might have been an animal, it might have been crops, it might actually have been trade goods, depending on what you did for a living. Okay, so it, it, it was simply a, 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 a motion of thankfulness to God for his provision, and it, and it took the form of anything, the first things that you received. So there's no requirement here of a bloody sacrifice and no contextual reason uh, to think that that is why God rejected Cain's offering. And then, if you were paying attention as the reading was made this morning in Hebrews chapter 11, we find an actually fairly straightforward explanation as to why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. And that is because Abel offered up his sacrifice in faith, while Cain did not. We don't know why he brought his offering. Perhaps he's trying to compete with his brother. Perhaps he comes uh, offering up a sacrifice, uh, this, this, this offering here, and uh, he just didn't really want to do it, but he feels some obligation to do so. Uh, but God looks at the invisible uh, purpose of the heart, the motivation of the heart, and understands that Cain has no good motives here, but Abel does. Abel offers up his sacrifice in faith. We'd like to know a little bit more, uh, uh, but uh, there's no more forthcoming. Here's the thing. As much as we want to make the story about redemption and how the ancients expressed faith unto salvation, the lack of de detail and the few details that we would do receive strongly suggests that that's not what the story is ultimately about. Now, it is very likely that Abel's offering was an expression of his dependence upon God and correlate trust in the promises of God that God first gave to his parents, Adam and Eve. 
And God did approve of this primitive expression of faith, but that's not really the story proper. It's the setup for the story that unfolds throughout the rest of this chapter. And so the story continues. Cain becomes man. He becomes very angry because of the response that God gives to Abel. God favors Abel and rejects Cain. And in response to this, God says to Cain, be careful, right? Because your ingratitude, your selfishness have put you into a very precarious spot, right? Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Verse 6 says, if you do what is right, you will be accepted. But you're in a precarious spot. You're at a hinge in your life right now. If you continue to persist in doing what is wrong, sin is crouching at the door and it's going to overtake you. Okay? But we know from the story that we've read already that Cain does not listen to God's advice. And in fact, he actually does give in to sin. If I can put Cain's name into another passage that we find in Romans chapter 1. Although Cain knew God, he did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, and so he became futile in his thinking. His foolish heart was darkened, and since he saw did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave him up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. He was filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, resulting in envy, strife, and murder. I, I think we can see every one of those items here, right? That's exactly what happens. And even though he knew God's righteous decree that those who practice these things deserve to die, he did them anyway. And so what we have here developing is a very clear picture of the progress of depravity and a fascinating window into the way that God manages evil that he has brought into his universe to forward his just and perfect ends. So we find here the story of the birth of civilization and the paradox in which we live, right, of a civil society that does not honor God or recognize God's role in the universe. Sound familiar? Right? That's where we live. That's where we exist. So Cain, fuming after his conversation with God, hatches a plan invites his brother out into the field where he can be alone with him and kills him. And depravity has progressed very, very rapidly to a capital crime. And so God is forced to respond swiftly in order that his universe does not simply fall apart. At every point, Cain responds poorly, proving that he was no believer. So let's look first at Cain's responses to God, and then we'll look uh, oppositely at God's management of the situation. So Cain, firstly, is asked where his brother is. Cain responds not only with a lie, he knows where his brother is, but he offers up an insolent lie. How should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? And you can sort of hear the snark in the tone, even in the English translation of the Hebrew, right? He's being very snarky with God. Here's, here's the first record of someone outright rejecting the grace of God and saying, I don't want it. I don't want the grace of God. And I don't really care whether I am accepted 
as God has offered to him. This is a very new and ugly development, and perhaps we miss it because it has become so routine in the world in which we live, right? Cain hates God. And then God meets out a punishment, but it's a very lenient punishment. We're perhaps a little bit surprised how lenient that God is with Cain. More on that in a little bit. Cain responds to that with arrogance as well. He says, my life's going to be miserable. Someone might kill me, right? These are simply astonishing words. Here's a murderer who is worried about the injustice of being murdered. But isn't this not the ironic reality in which we live? We've got people voting not too far from here to enshrine the right of murder into the very Constitution so that we can be protected from prosecution if we commit that murder. I mean, are, are we far off from what Cain is saying? I don't think so. Finally, in a move that I think is laced with contempt, verse 16 says that Cain went out from before the Lord, from the presence of the Lord, or literally from the face of the Lord. And so the addition of that term here, the face or the presence of the Lord, likely points to more than just walking away from the conversation. This is not an amicable end to the conversation. Really, it's a deliberate and climactic departure from the very prospect of fullness of joy at the hand of God forever. The pleasures of being at God's right hand are gone. He, he walks away. He turns his back on God. <clears throat> and so we look at, with some dismay, at what Cain has done here. Very cold and heartless response to God. And now we come to what is perhaps the, the crux of this story, the critical part of this story, and that is the response that God gives to Cain. So we've, we've seen how Cain has responded at every point to God. Now let's look to see how God has responded to Cain. And I think we learn a great deal here. The response begins with God's rejection of Cain's gift, right? Likely because, we've said here, of some sort of an invisible heart attitude that God could see, uh, but the rest of us perhaps cannot. Here is a display of divine holiness that insists on a response of gratefulness and submissive faith, and when Cain did not deliver these things, there had to be some sort of a punishment meted out. And yet, even though God is put into this place where punishment must be meted out towards Cain, what does he do? He holds out an olive branch. He says, if you do well, you can still find acceptance. You can repent of what you have done. You can still find acceptance with God. Okay, so rather than just coming down on him like a ton of bricks, he says, there's a solution to this problem. Just repent and you will find acceptance. God's lenience continues even after the murder with an astonishing display of grace, right? Here is no swift destruction like we might expect. But just as with Cain's parent, there is, there is sort of a disarming approach. You know, remember what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve? Adam, Eve, where are you? Of course, God knows where they are, as the story unfolds to tell us. He, he knows exactly where he is, and the same thing happens here. He says, Cain, where's your brother? How should I know? 
Well, his voice is calling out to me from the ground. So it's not as though God didn't know where Abel was. He knows that his brother has apparently buried him in some unmarked grave somewhere. Okay? So God knew exactly where Abel's body was, and yet he, he employs this disarming approach in order to effect an, a confession from Cain, just as he had with Adam and Eve. It worked with Adam and Eve. They, they responded favorably. Cain didn't. Cain responded very poorly. Okay? And so this is, this, is where we, this is where we end up. But even a greater display of grace comes later in the judgment that God hands out to Cain. Certainly, God would have been within his rights to simply strike down Cain. And perhaps as you're reading the story, you're saying, yeah, smash him. Instead, God sentences Cain to be a perpetual nomad. He says here that the earth would resist his efforts more than they had resisted the efforts of Adam. Remember, after the fall, it becomes difficult for Adam to work the soil, but he apparently is able to do so successfully. Cain will not be successful. The earth is going to push back against him, so much so that he de-evolves and becomes a, a scavenger, a hunter-gatherer. Okay? So he becomes a nomad, drifting from place to place, scavenging what he can in order to survive. So he de-evolves. More than this, God even accedes to Cain's incredibly selfish request by putting a mark upon him. Everybody wants to know what the mark is. I have no idea. Okay, But put some sort of mark upon Cain as an indicator that Cain is under a special dispensation of protection from the Lord God. If you kill him, you are going to be judged. And this is perhaps the hardest part of the story for us, right? We expect swift justice. But if we're honest, justice is what we want for other people. Mercy is what we want for ourselves. We who have been forgiven much are often the first to cry out for payment from others, right? From the parable in the New Testament. And yet there remains in God an impulse, native to his character, to give of himself and of his grace freely for the good of his creatures, irrespective of merit. And so Christ in his mercy absorbs the demands of justice in his own person, not merely for the salvation of some, but for the temporal benefit of all. In fact, the very fact that we live one minute is due to this kind of grace, right? He did this for everyone. That's why it's called common grace. By common grace, Psalm 145 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to judge, and great in loving kindness, good to all of his works. By it, Matthew 5 says, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Luke actually puts an emphasis on the fact that he is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So why is God kind to all men? Well, We'd all like to point to the fact that such primitive graces are the soil in which the gospel sprouts, and that is often the case, right? The riches of the kindness and tolerance and patience of God, Romans 2 says, 
leads us to repentance. And inevitably, once we have embraced God in, in Jesus Christ, we inevitably look about us and find that we have been all along in an ocean of common grace. But what is God's purpose in granting His common grace to those He has not called? Cain seems to be one of these, right? Cain never responds favorably. Why does he extend common grace to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate him? Why does he extend grace to those in which he, in his kindness he raises to great heights only to receive from them a slap in the face that they couldn't even have delivered had he not even raised them to his level? Why do the heathen rage? Why do the people clamor after emptiness? And the answer is that in God's grace, He is using the wrath of man to praise Him. This is what we see, right, in verses 20 to 22. Even as mankind is deteriorating in their depravity, we find three named pagans, wicked men, who are used of God to make incredible advances. Jabal was the father of those who are engaged in animal husbandry. He was an expert farmer, an, an, an expert in terms of raising animals. Jubal is the father of the musical arts. This is, this, is a, this is an advance reserved in every age for societies that have achieved time for leisure through grueling hard years of work. And yet this, this man, Jubal, becomes the prototype of all of the music that has come since. And then finally, Tubal-Cain, He's in the fourth generation, right? The fourth generation of people on this earth. He has already mastered the science necessary to do all kinds of metal work, including bronze and iron. Now, sometimes those words just sort of slip past us because, okay, yeah, we use that kind of stuff all the time. But those of you who perhaps can remember back into your history classes, you remember that the Iron Age doesn't show up until about 1,000 B.C., which means that until 1,000 B.C., basically, they couldn't make fires hot enough to work with iron, okay? They hadn't figured it out. And yet we find in this passage that Tubal-Cain, four generations in, has figured out how to do it. Now, apparently that skill was lost, perhaps through the flood. Uh, we don't know all the details here, but this, this ability to manipulate iron is lost and isn't picked up again for thousands of years. This guy is really smart, and he's figured things out. So these pagan god-despisers were building a civil society for his glory and drawing attention to God's creative genius even as they attempt to overthrow him. But as we come to the end of the third paragraph, detailing the incredible advances of Cain's family, we are sobered to see their progress, too, in depravity. Because that's one of the collateral effects of God's grace, right? Depraved people exploit God's kindness, and this is seen in the boast of Lamech. He's very arrogant. 
He puts it into the form of a poem or a song. Probably those of you who are reading along with me saw that it was sort of set off in, in poetic form. He apparently is either writing a song or he's writing some sort of a poem in which he boasts arrogantly against God and taunts God effectively, right? It says he, It's hard to know exactly what he's boasting about, but it seems like he's boasting about killing a man and how he is able to do so without any twinge of conscience and without any concern that God will punish him. So if God dealt leniently with Cain and punished those who would pursue Cain seven times, he says, 77 for me. Okay. And he's just boastful in his murder. Basically, he says, I am bad. I am really bad. No one can stand against me, not even God. And so we see this advance in depravity that is breathtaking here. And sadly, we live in a society where depravity and contempt for the grace of God has reached something of a crescendo. We're tempted to give in to the despair of the day, the spirit of the age, and we might do so if not for the last scene in the story. Right? The last scene in the story mirrors the first one, right? Adam, verse 25, made love to his wife again, and she bore a son and called him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child to replace Abel since Cain killed him. And after a second generation is born, at this time, Finally, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, and the relief here is palpable. In the midst of a world that for apparently about 235 years had been pretty much bent on dismissing and even taunting God, there is a son who's born, a replacement for the child whose life had been tragically cut short, and his children would restore the worship of the true and living God. Now, Cain's family has a huge head start on Seth's family. If you look at the, uh, in, the, in the upcoming chapters at the, uh, at the genealogies, you find that 235 years pass before people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. So it seems like for about 235 years, there's almost no one who is responding favorably to God. And so the world is filled with long-lived people who by and large resist, resisted and rejected God. And yet we find that God's intent is not simply to build a flourishing civilization. And we find here a glimpse into this second and very important goal of creating a people for himself. A people who call upon the name of the Lord for their salvation. And this group of people appears almost as an afterthought in the chapter, a little bit out of place in terms of the chapter's emphasis. And still, it is a witness to the fact that God's purpose in the universe is twofold. He wants to build a culture of people in His image on the basis of common grace, but also to create within it a people for His namesake on the basis of redemptive grace. This is developed further in chapters 5 and 6, and we find how Noah uh, comes to prominence in the storyline. It's long been a habit of believers to read the first, this, this, the first half of chapter 4 here 
insert a redemptive twist or two and extract some sort of moral lesson, and then pretty much gloss over the rest of the story as so much filler. And hopefully, uh, by walking through the chapter today, you're doing a little bit more than that. You've been alerted to the fact that there is much more in the chapter, much to be learned about God, much to be learned about what He is doing in the world in which we live, especially in troubling occasions where wickedness seems to prosper. And that seems like most of the time, right? What shall our response be when we live in a world where we are hopelessly outnumbered by God-haters? In such times, I think we do well to remind ourselves, as this text does, that in such situations, God has not failed in His dealings with men, nor with His own integrity. He's omniscient at every point along the way. He is aware of the situation. He is sovereign. He is in control of the situation. He is holy and just and can be trusted to set things straight. But, as what, but we further observe that God is carrying out His plan in inscrutable ways that magnify not only His holy justice, but also emphasize His gracious wisdom in compelling violent men to build a social order for Himself, building largely and ironically on the borrowed capital of the Christian worldview that they so despise. God extends to them every courtesy and opportunity to be part of this narrow group of people who call upon the name of the Lord and will worship Him forever. And knowing the depths to which sin has taken every one of us, we should remain ever grateful that that is the way God has dealt with sin in His universe. So as we close, the invitation, such as it is, is twofold. If you find yourself, and I hope many of most of you do, in that small band of faithful believers, like those who called upon the name of the Lord, descendants of Enoshir, or who, like Abel, gave his life, don't lose the heart. Instead, stay the course, no matter what the cost, and to be found as Abel was in Hebrews chapter 11 by this descriptor, by faith. He was commended as a righteous man. God will set things straight, but in His grace, not always right away. But two, if you do find yourself in that ungodly line of Cain, who although they knew God, and you do, neither acknowledged God for who He was nor gave thanks, don't content yourself simply to be a sturdy builder of society. You're a good guy, a hard worker, a charitable neighbor, an accomplished artist perhaps. Those things are commendable. But it will not get you from the hand of God all that you might have had. Instead, in faith, submit to this God forsaking the pleasures of sin and seizing that offer of acceptance with Him and forgiveness. And God will make you worthy not only in this life, but for the life to come. May God help all of us to see and to know the grace of God that He has extended to us. Lord, we're grateful this morning for Your grace. 
these, these, this greatly contoured grace that you extend to all of us and to each of us. Lord, we are grateful for both its common elements and also its redemptive elements. And Lord, as we, as we, as we ponder what's going on in this, Lord, I ask that you would cause us to be good neighbors, to be good, to be good people. But Lord, I do ask that we would make it our, our, our deepest concern and desire to be part of this small band uh, whereby we may call upon the name of the Lord and receive from your hand not only common grace, but your salvation, uh, pleasures at your right hand and in your presence forevermore. And Lord, I ask that you would uh, strengthen us all to that end, we pray in your name. Amen.